So this is a reading from Mark 12, verse 35, from page 1580 in the Black Bibles. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I'd like to thank Carl for the opportunity and the encouragement to preach. Um, this is my first time preaching a sermon in TCU or in any other church. Um, 9 a.m. was the trial run, so you guys should be the main audience. Then. No, I'm kidding. Um, so you can understand that I'm excited, but also very nervous because I keep thinking of James chapter 3, verse 1 that says, uh, those who teach will be judged more strictly. So um, let's, let's see how we go. I'll be asking questions throughout the sermon, and just like in Bible study, if you don't answer, I'll pick on you. Kidding, I won't do that. I won't do that. So I'll get a bit nervous. Um, I'd like to start with a question on the screen to get all of us thinking. True or false, the religious system of Jesus' day, as led by the Jewish leaders, was an apostate or false form of religion. Apostate meaning deviating from the truth. True or false, the religious system of Jesus' day, as led by the Jewish leaders, was an apostate or false form of religion. Who says yes? Thank you. Who says no? You guys are more encouraging than the first service. That's good. Um, in this passage, we see Jesus' scathing indictment of the religious leaders, followed by the account of the poor widow. I'd venture to say that most of us would have heard the story of the poor widow taught to us as an example of Christian giving. But may I suggest to you that I do not believe that is the case. And I'll, I'll explain why as we, as we go through the text. Let me read um, verses 38 to, to 40 again for you. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. 
They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished more severely. Harsh words, isn't it, from Jesus? Now the scribes were a subset of the Pharisees who were experts of the law. They were the lawyers of Israel who were involved in the interpretation and the application of the law. And together with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the high priests, they formed the 71-member Sanhedrin, which is the highest ruling court in Israel. They were meant to be the teachers, the protectors, and the shepherds of the people. But here, they are characterized by pride, greed, and hypocrisy. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 23. It'll also be on the screen behind me. This is the parallel passage of the same account. And Matthew gives us more detail of the same encounter and unmasks who the religious leaders truly are. Verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbis by others. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, but when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead, dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And lastly, verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you built the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Harsh words by our Lord Jesus Christ to the Pharisees and scribes. You know you're in trouble when Jesus says, beware of the leaders who are meant to protect and lead you. So I ask again, true or false, the religious system and leaders of Jesus' day were an apostate or false form of religion? I think the answer is quite clear. Here in Mark 12, they are characterized by hypocrisy, pride, and greed. And there are, other, uh, <clears throat> there are other verses in the New Testament that also support this. In Luke, the Pharisees were lovers of money. In Matthew, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. And in John, Jesus says of the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. Now, the religious leaders were meant to care for the widows, not to devour them. And the Old Testament is full of warnings of mistreating widows. Again, on the screen, Exodus 22. 
you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, for my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword. Deuteronomy 10. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And Malachi 3. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless. So it's clear from these verses what God's attitude is towards widows. He greatly cares for them, and to mistreat them is to incur God's wrath and judgment. But in actual fact, what the Pharisees are doing here is nothing new. They are simply continuing in the traditions of their forefathers in the Old Testament. In Amos 5, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Isaiah 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil. Ezekiel 22. The conspiracy of a prophet in the midst is like a roaring lion tearing their prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasures and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. And with that, we come to the story of the poor widow. Almost universally, this is taught as an example and model of Christian giving. Giving till it hurts. But can I suggest to you, given the passages which just read, I don't believe that is the case. So why is this story here? What do we learn from it? Let's take a closer look. In verse 43, Mark 12, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who, have, who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Relatively speaking, the widow gave more than the rich. It cost her more. It cost her everything. Please notice that Jesus doesn't mention her motivation, thoughts, or attitudes towards giving. He doesn't commend her or talk about her devotion, faith, or love for God. He doesn't say, go and do likewise. And he doesn't condemn the rich, the rich or say that they have to give more or give till it hurts. In fact, the text says that they put in large sums. Jesus does say, but out of her poverty, she has put everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now, what do you think the consequence of that is? What will happen if you give everything you had to live on? This poor widow will now go home and starve to death. In Luke's account of the same story on the screen, she goes from poor in verse 2 to destitute in verse 3 after giving her thigh. The Greek word used is panikros, verse 2, referring to poor, but the word changes to tokros, meaning destitute, in verse 3. So why is this story here? What does it mean? One of the key principles of studying the Bible is understanding the context of the passage, because context controls meaning. If you look carefully, this account sits between Jesus' condemnation of the Jewish, Jewish leaders in verses 38 to 40 
and his prediction of the temple's destruction in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And if you look at the wider context of Mark chapters 11 and 12, you will find that we are in the last week of Jesus' life on earth, also known as Passion Week, on the screen. On Monday, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey and was hailed as the Messiah by the people. On Tuesday, he cleanses the temple and calls it a den of robbers. On the same day, he also curses the fig tree, which is symbolic of the temple and its leaders. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. On Wednesday, as he taught in the temple, the religious leaders, as we've learned the last three weeks, they try to trap Jesus so that they can arrest and kill him, something they've been planning since Mark chapter 3. And by Friday, the same crowd who hailed him as Messiah on Monday are calling out for his blood, for him to be crucified. So the context of the verses before and after this account and the wider context of chapters 11 and 12 of Mark highlight the corruption of the leaders, the religious leaders who ran the temple, which Jesus cursed in chapter 12 and foretold its destruction in chapter 13. Now we know from history that the temple was eventually destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans entered Jerusalem and torched it to the ground. And the temple and the sacrificial system has never recovered. The temple no longer exists. Here in this account, Jesus sees a corrupt system that doesn't honor God, God's heart to care for the needy. Instead, the system has created wealthy leaders who built lavish buildings. He is not impressed by wonderful stones mentioned in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. In fact, he says in John 2, 19, that he is the new temple, where he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. So, the widow's offering is an illustration of injustice, not generosity or sacrificial giving. Her livelihood is devoured by wealthy religious leaders, leaders who steal from the poor under the guise of giving to God. It costs her everything. She will now go home and die. She is a victim, not an example. Deuteronomy 26.12 on the screen tells us that Every three years, Israel would collect a tithe for the Levite, sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled as God had commanded. Temple authorities were not supposed to be taking from the vulnerable, but making sure people gave their tithe every third year to them. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. They did the very opposite. They liked to walk around in long robes. They liked greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues. They made pretentious prayers, and they devoured widows. Beware of them, Jesus says. According to Matthew 23, they are sons of hell, making other sons of hell. They are the blind leading the blind. And the consequence of not heeding Jesus' warning is eternal damnation. Beware. The question that we haven't answered yet is why did the widow give all that she had? Why did she do it, knowing that she would die? Now, we don't know her reasons or what motivated her to give everything, 
document, we've established that the religious system that she was part of was a false form of religion that was run by corrupt leaders. Now, in the Jewish mind, almsgiving or giving money to the poor was regarded as evidence of righteousness. Just like today, you get baptized because you want to demonstrate the inward reality of salvation. And you partake in communion because you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, for example, in Matthew 6, 1 on the screen, the English Standard Version says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. But in the King James Version, Matthew 6, 1 reads this like this. Take heed that ye do not your arms before men to be seen of them. So for the Jew and for the um, translators of the Bible, arms equals righteousness. But over time, the Jews came to think that almsgiving or giving money to the poor had the power of atoning for sins. Just like some who attend church today think that being baptized and taking communion is going to save you. It does not. In the Talmud, which is the, um, the text for rabbinic teaching, where the, 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 the Jewish uh, rabbis' teaching and traditions are documented, it says, Almsgiving is more excellent than all offerings, is equal to the whole law, will deliver from the condemnation of hell, and will make one perfectly righteous. In other words, you gave money to gain God's favor, earn righteousness, and buy salvation. This was the religious system that the poor widow was trapped in. So again, she is an illustration of being a victim in this false religious system that claims to love God and serve God, but in reality, it was filling its own pockets. Does this sound familiar? Where you have to pay money to buy salvation. Anyone? Marcus? Oh. Does this sound familiar? The year is 1517 in Germany. Who faced the same issue? Martin Luther, that's right. And the selling of indulgences. By the way, that's how Rome built St. Peter's Basilica, by collecting money from the poor. In the Roman Catholic Church, people paid money to purchase God's favor and salvation. You think of words like purgatory, penance, and treasury of merit. There is a warning in Galatians 1, but even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, which is the strongest Greek word of condemnation. In other words, go to hell. The Galatian church was plagued by the error that salvation is by faith plus works or law. It is blasphemous to think or believe that God's favor can be humanly bought or sold. That was what the Roman Catholic Church was doing and what the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day did. They thought that God's grace is a product that can be bought or sold in the religious marketplace. Martin Luther said, I quote, the church of Rome has become the most lawless den of thieves, the most shameless of our brothels, the very kingdom of sin, death, and hell, so that not even Antichrist, if he were to come, would devise any addition to its wickedness. Harsh words. 
So, what does this all mean for us? How do we apply all this judgment and doom and gloom? Number one, beware. Beware of false teachers. Number two, beware of what they teach because they will lead others down the path of destruction. They are sons of hell, making other sons of hell. Blind leading the blind. There are eternal consequences. One might say, we don't have false teachers today. And even if we did, I attend an evangelical Bible-believing church where truth is taught, like this one. Let me show you a few verses from the New Testament on the screen. 2 Corinthians 11. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Jude 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. And Acts 20, Paul, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From these verses, we see that false teachers are hidden, they are not obvious, and they are in our churches disguised as angels, servants of righteousness. What do they teach? We saw in Galatians that some teach salvation by faith and works. This is what we call legalism, where you do good works to earn salvation. Baptism, communion, church attendance, these are all good things to do, but they do not save. Ephesians 2 verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. The gift here refers to both grace and faith. So even the faith that we have is a gift. Another heresy, a false teaching, that has been present in the church since the time of the apostles is what we call antinomianism. Antinomianism. The belief that God's law no longer applies to Christians. Today, we call that the hyper-grace movement. In other words, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter how you live your life because God will, God has and will forgive all your sins. They say, we continue to sin so that grace may abound. That is a lie. The New Testament teaches that justification is always accompanied by sanctification. There is no such thing as a Christian that doesn't bear fruit. In James 2.17 on the screen, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, faith always produces works. If works is not present, then one wonders whether there is faith. So you can tell whether someone is a true believer or not by the way they live, how they speak, how they think, behave, and what they prioritize. You may then come and say to me, I don't believe in legalism or antinomianism. I'm an evangelical Christian. I believe everything in the Apostles' Creed, and we recite it every week. I don't listen to false teachers or sit under their teaching. What are you talking about? Friends, whether you realize it or not, the world system that we live in and its ideologies are all under the control and influence of the devil. 1 John 5, 19, 
the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now the word stronghold, or fortresses and other interpretations, can also refer to prison or a tomb, and the word arguments or speculations refers to any human ideology, which include worldly opinions, reasoning, viewpoints, and religions. So, but, so what 2 Corinthians 10 is trying to say is that doomed souls are inside their fortresses of worldly ideas, which become their prisons and eventually their tombs, unless they are delivered from them by belief in the truth. So spiritual warfare is an ideological conflict, a battle for the minds of people who are captive to lies that are exalted in opposition of truth. Another important text is 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The word world here doesn't refer to the physical created world, but it refers to the sin and evil that is, sorry, the world system of sin and evil that is anti-God, which is made up of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We, as Christians, are not immune to it, and that's why we continue to sin, because the devil tempts us through those three avenues. There is a warning in Isaiah 5, verse 20, on the screen. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. This describes our world currently, does it not? So, who are we listening to every day? Who are your influences? Who do you follow? Who are we allowing to inform our minds, decisions, and priorities? Do we spend more time under the influence of the world throughout our week? Or are we sitting under his word and gathering with his people? Do you see Jesus as Lord and align our lives around him rather than the false teachers of the world today? How do we guard ourselves against the world system? Simply, the answer is simple. Psalms 109, sorry, Psalms 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So friends, number one, beware, beware of false teachers. And number two, beware of what they teach. They still exist today. They are in our churches. And they continue to propagate the ideologies of the world. A world that lies in the power of the evil one. I'd like to end by reading from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the warning against false teachers and their teaching. 
we thank you that we know the truth and the gospel which has set us free from sin and death. We pray for those who don't believe in you. May you enlighten the eyes of their hearts to know the truth. We pray for those trapped in apostate forms of Christianity. Please deliver them from the lies of the evil one. And we pray for ourselves. Help us to be strong in the Lord and to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. All for your glory. Amen.